Hey there, and welcome to episode 45 of Silver Screeners. Thank you, as always, for clicking that little triangle that points to the right. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've listened before, then thank you for coming back. This podcast is all in the name of love for the cinema, past, present, and future. And that said, I'd like to share a conversation that I had recently with a couple of my grade 12 students. They asked me, what would you do if you could never watch a movie again? So I just shot straight from the hip and I told it like it is. I said, curl into the fetal position, suck my thumb, and hope for the best. But luckily, there's no curling, no thumb sucking happening here because over the past couple of months, I've been doing a special series on this podcast on Oscar-winning and nominated films that'll hopefully get you geared up for this year's Oscar night. Sunday night, March 27th, 8 p.m., live on ABC. For those of you not in the States, that's the American Broadcasting System, but they're also airing in 200 territories worldwide. I wish I could list all 200, but you probably don't want me to, and I can't say that I blame you. That's when Google becomes a very good pal to have. Since the last episode, I did manage to find the time to watch one more Best Picture nominee joining the list of ones I'd already seen. The ones I already saw were Coda, Nightmare Alley, West Side Story, Dune, Licorice Pizza, and Don't Look Up. The one that I managed to get in since last time, Power of the Dog, but more on that in the next episode. As for this episode, as Ricky Ricardo said on I Love Lucy when he was practicing how to get her to the hospital on time to have their baby, The time has come. This is the last episode in this limited run of episodes that'll be taking a look back at winners and nominees of yesteryear. Now that it's reached its end, I'm really curious to know if this was something that worked for you. On the one hand, having an Oscar-themed run throughout the season, it seemed like a good way to drum up interest in this year's telecast, but if it got too predictable, I'd want to know that too, so don't be shy. I'd love to hear from you with authentic feedback on whether or not this is something that I should repeat next Oscar season, or if going in a different direction instead is something that would keep you more engaged. Maybe moving from the beginning to the end of this run of Oscar episodes in five-year increments was a thing that worked? Maybe not. Maybe you've been reminded of films that you hadn't seen in a long time, or maybe it was a walk down memory lane, or maybe there were some titles that you had never even heard of or never saw. Either way, if you, at any point during this run, ever said to yourself, Damn, that old movie, bring it on! Then, many thanks. But, if you, at any point during this run, ever said to yourself, Oh, damn, he's talking about that old movie? Nobody cares! Nobody cares! Then, with all due respect, may I suggest that you check it out, as we keep reminding ourselves of what actress Lauren McCall once said, It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. For this last episode of Oscars of the Past, 2016 is the year we're working with, you all had a hand in deciding which film gets the spotlight, next to the Best Picture winner Moonlight. And it was a pretty tight race. I put the polls out there on my socials, the film Lion was in the lead for a while, then it was La La Land, and then Lion took over again, and it was a dead heat for a day or two until finally, the tie-breaking vote was cast. And that brought La La Land out front. So, my friends, I give you Moonlight and La La Land. Before we go any further, though, I want to make one thing clear. The weekly polls ain't going anywhere. They were around long before these Oscar-themed episodes. They're staying around long after. Whether I've had guests on or flew solo in any given episode, there have been polls for you listeners to take part in. Like back in December when I did an episode on the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life, the poll asked whether or not you minded the colorized version. When Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes, he came on to talk about the first Batman movie with Michael Keaton. The poll that ran that week leading into the episode had pictures of four different versions of the Batmobile and asked you which one was your favorite model. Stu and Al from the Stu and Al pod came on to talk about the films of the Coen brothers. The poll asked for your favorite Coen brothers film. 
Ian from the podcast Cult Connections. He joined me a few months back for the 90th anniversary of Dracula and Frankenstein. Tommy from Rewatch, Relive, Repeat was on for The Wolfman and An American Werewolf in London. Mike from Now This Is Podcasting, he was on to talk about the Star Wars original trilogy. Chris from The Movie Psycho, he came on for The Departed a few weeks ago. My colleague Jamie and her brother Eric, they came on for the Halloween franchise. And published writer Mark Kantrowitz, author of Old Whiskey and Young Women, American True Crime Tales of Murder, Sex, and Scandal. Great book. Definitely check that bad Larry out, as well as all these podcasts I just mentioned. I know that this has sort of turned into a recap of previous guests and everything that they've created, but that's okay. More collaborations with a lot of them are coming up. I'm talking with other podcasters as well. As for right now, the point is, is that there's always something each week that's going to give each and every one of you listeners a chance to get involved, which is exactly the way I want it. So follow me, or keep following me on my socials, and you'll keep seeing weekly chances to make your voice heard. Obviously, with these Oscar episodes, it's been the same question each week. The vote's been for which nominated movie gets covered alongside the Best Picture winner. Again, though, for this final one, this final episode, we're looking at Moonlight and La La Land. This episode, as usual, in the interest of pleasing everybody who voted, there's going to be a bonus fun fact for each of 2016's nominated films. Whether or not this is your first time tuning in, let me give you the rundown of today's episode, which follows the same format that we've been using. We'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, comments on the opening shots of both Moonlight and La La Land, then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both, as well as, as I said, the other nominated films from 2016, and they were Manchester by the Sea, Arrival, Lion, Hidden Figures, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, and Hell or High Water. Then comes the segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous, memorable moments from the Oscar telecast in early 17. Then the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And finally, The Big Finish, a preview of what's to come in the near future for this podcast. So as we rewind five years to Sunday, February 26, 2017, allow me to apologize for my husky voice this time around. It's allergy season, so I'm getting all of the sore throats and that kind of fun stuff. As the 2016 Oscars took to the stage, and in some cases, like the announcement of Best Picture, gave the stage back and took their seats again. More on that later if you're not familiar. The New England Patriots had just had the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. They beat the Atlanta Falcons in overtime after trailing by 25 points in the third quarter. A month earlier, in January, the women's match on Washington for policies regarding women's rights and other issues became one of the largest single-day demonstrations in U.S. history. Beyoncé had just broken the internet in early February when she announced her pregnancy with twins on Instagram. The British ad agency The Robin Collective had a sculptor by the name of David Bradley make a life-sized replica of her photo using 45 pounds of cheddar cheese. In other words, it's time now for the spoiler-free plot setups. Moonlight, an independent film written and directed by Barry Jenkins. He received the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar for this one, and starring Mahershala Ali, who got Best Supporting Actor, and Naomi Harris, who was nominated in the Supporting Actress category. Nominations also went to Jenkins for directing, original musical score, editing, and cinematography. 
The film opens with the studio logos appearing on screen to the sounds of lapping ocean waves, while a song by Boris Godner plays over a car radio. A man named Juan, played by Mahershala Ali, he is seen driving a blue car towards the camera, and he's looking pretty concentrated and not a little determined. He turns the car off, gets out, walks across the street where a couple of guys are standing. The two of them, they're greeting each other. One of them is a drug addict, desperately looking for a hit from the other one, but he doesn't get anywhere. The second guy sends the drug addict away, and then turns to Juan. Juan and the second guy exchange hellos, and they talk briefly, before Juan begins crossing the street again, back the way he came. And as he does, a group of kids race past him on foot, chasing this young kid with a blue backpack. The poor kid manages to yank open a door of a nearby home, and he rushes inside, shuts the door, locks it tight. Then there's pounding on the door, of course. He's covering his ears in terror, and the voices outside yell at each other to go around back. He flies upstairs, and he looks out his window, and down below on the ground are the bullies throwing things and shattering the glass. He backs away from the window and cowers on the floor and buries his face. Cut to him in another room, and then he hears the sounds of nails being pulled out of something. It's Juan, removing the glass from a downstairs window and making his way inside. He asks this kid, what are you doing in here? The kid keeps his mouth shut, so Juan backs off and changes tactics. He invites the kid to join him to get something to eat. Juan opens the front door, steps outside, looks back at the kid and says, come on. But the kid just looks at him suspiciously. The scene cuts off. A title card comes up that says, one, little. Cut into Juan and the kid sitting in a diner across from each other. Juan's still trying to get the kid to tell him his name or where he lives, but the kid's eating without saying a word. Juan tells him, you can't just be running around in these dope holes, as he calls this impoverished and drug-addled area. But the kid stays quiet. Then cut to Juan driving with the kid in the passenger seat, and they pull up to a house. He tells the kid that his girlfriend Teresa, played by Janelle Monet, will get him to talk. Teresa comes out. Juan tells her that he found the kid in a dope hole, and can she get him to identify himself. She walks over to the car where the kid is still in the passenger seat and gets in. They just sit there, without saying a word, for a few awkward beats. The next thing we see is a cut to the kid sitting at the table with Juan and Teresa, and he's slowly eating some more food that they had put out for him. By this point, Juan is feeling really affectionate for the kid. He's looking at him, and he says with a laugh, You don't talk much, but you can sure eat. And finally, the kid speaks up in a timid voice and says, My name is Chiron. People call me Little. Teresa says, I'm going to call you by your name. Where are you from, Chiron? He says, Liberty City. He lives with his mother, but just looks down quietly when Teresa asks him about his father. When he still doesn't say where he lives, Teresa offers for him to spend the night, much to Juan's surprise. Teresa ignores Juan and says to Chiron, Would you like that? And Chiron nods, Yeah. Then we see Chiron waking up in bed the following morning, and then back in the passenger seat as he's being brought home. The camera's behind him, so he's not facing us. We see the back of his head, and he's leaning out the window, just sort of stoically watching his environment as they go down the street. It's really a pretty poignant moment. It's just him looking out at his world, but not showing really any visible reactions to it. He knocks on his own front door, but there's no answer. But then a woman's voice is heard calling out, What happened, Chiron? Why didn't you come home like you're supposed to? It's his mother, Paula, played by Academy Award nominee Naomi Harris. She demands to know who Juan is. Juan fills her in on what happened, that a group of bullies were chasing Chiron, and Chiron wouldn't tell Juan and Teresa where he lived until that morning. Juan tries to give Chiron a farewell fist bump, but Paula pulls Chiron away. Inside, she says to him with mild exasperation, You know, you're a real prize. 
You've got to come home when you're supposed to. She then goes over to him and hugs him and tells him she's glad he's home. He gets up sullenly and he goes over to the TV, but she says, no, no TV, TV privileges revoked. Go find yourself something to read instead. The next scene brings us outside onto an athletic field near railroad tracks where a group of kids are playing soccer. Instead of a soccer ball, though, it looks like a wad of crumpled up newspaper shreds. It's hard to say 100% exactly what it is. Whatever it is, it's not a real soccer ball. And it's one of those subtle touches of authenticity that really brings out the character of the environment that this whole story is set in. These kids just don't seem to care that it's not a real ball. They're just making do with what they have, and they're having a good time. But Chiron's not really getting into it, not really. He walks away from the game with his only friend Kevin, played by Jaden Pina, following him. Kevin catches up and tells him, Chiron, you gotta prove yourself to the other kids. You gotta prove that you're not soft. You gotta stand up for yourself. Sticking with his M.O., Chiron keeps silent. He says nothing in response. And the silence is deafening. The two of them then play fight and play wrestle on the ground for a minute. Then they pull away from each other and they lie on their backs next to each other. Kevin gets up first, looks down at Chiron, who's still on his back on the ground, and says, I knew you weren't soft, with a knowing grin on his face. And The implication here is written on the wall, so I... I, w- I want to tread very carefully here with what I say about these two kids and what's going on here. Kevin helps Chiron up, and the two of them run home side by side, the both of them laughing. The next thing we see is Juan pulling up to Chiron's yard in his blue car and getting out and walking over to him. There's no dialogue, just a quick cut to the two of them standing next to each other on the beach looking out at the ocean. Juan walks into the water first, and Chiron nervously follows him. Chiron does not know how to swim. And this brings us to what is arguably, well, I would say without question, the most recognizable sequence from the film. Juan has one hand holding the back of Chiron's head while Chiron is leaning back into the water. Juan just keeps repeating, I gotcha, and I'm not going to let you go. It's a very powerful scene, this bonding between this little lost kid and a, a drug dealer who's got a huge hat for him and becomes sort of a father figure to him. So Chiron's floating on his back in the water, and Juan says to him, You're in the middle of the world, man. He teaches him the crawl stroke. Chiron eventually is able to do that on his own. When the two of them are sitting together on the beach, Juan gives him a little bit of his own background. That he's from Cuba, and that when he was Chiron's age, he was, quote, a wild little shorty running around with no shoes on when the moon was out. End quote. Just like Chiron. This brings us about 20 minutes into the film, so it's probably best to hit the pause button there and and mention that Moonlight is based on an unpublished play from playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney, titled In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. The play is semi-autobiographical, and like the film's director, Barry Jenkins, McCraney also grew up in Liberty City, so there's, there's definitely an air of reality to the whole thing. They're writing what they know. The play itself was written about 10 years before the movie was actually made. McCraney said that he wrote it as a way of of processing the death of his mother. Now, I think it's a cliche and a little cheap to simply say that Moonlight is a coming-of-age story. I mean, it is, but somehow that feels like an overused phrase that just, I don't know, it just limits the scope of everything that the film sets out to do. It explores Chiron's life in three acts. These first 20 minutes, and a little beyond them, that's act one. And that's when he's called Little. Act 2 has an older actor, Ashton Sanders, who plays Chiron as a teenager. Only in this part of the film, he does not go by Little anymore. Act 3 is called Black, and has the same character, now played by Trevante Rhodes. 
He's in his mid-twenties at this point in the story, so I won't say anything beyond that. The thing to understand about Moonlight is that it is a deeply personal film. It's really unassuming, it's very intimate, and as I've said in this podcast before about certain types of stories, when there's a character who is imploding quietly, as opposed to bombastically exploding, there is power in that. If I had to pick at nits, I guess I'd have to say that the middle of the film does lose its momentum every once in a while. Avoidably, it slows down a bit. A few scenes could have been trimmed a bit, but overall, this is a really well-written, very sensitively written story that leaves you with the impression that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you can make your way back up to the top again. And I appreciate stories like that. So ultimately, I give Moonlight a thumbs up and say, yeah, give it a look. Would I have given it Best Picture? Well, maybe in certain years I would have, years with a weaker crop of nominees. But the truth is, 2016 was one of the strongest lineups, for me anyway, in recent memory, so I would probably stop short of calling Moonlight the best picture of the year, but it's definitely up there among the better ones of the nine contenders. And speaking of the other contenders, let's pivot towards another 2016 best picture nominee. This one will put a pep in your step and a fantasy in your head for the next time you're trapped in rush hour traffic on the freeway in the middle of a heat wave. I speak, of course, of the comedy, drama, musical, fantasy, La La Land. What the hell does that even mean? I have no idea. It's got some light-hearted moments in it, so the comedy label does seem to fit. And there are also some moments of intensified drama, so there you go. It's got an Oscar-winning musical score composed by Justin Hurwitz, an original soundtrack filled with songs like Another Day of Sun, Someone in the Crowd, The Fools Who Dream, and the Oscar-winning City of Stars. But I also call it a fantasy because it deliberately sets out to be sort of a throwback to the glossy Technicolor musical films of years past. Brightly colored costumes, montages with dissolves and zoom-ins and zoom-outs and iris shots, and to an extent, an unrealistic but idealized portrayal of young bright people filled with hopes and aspirations. So yeah, let's rap about the comedy, drama, musical, fantasy, La La Land. For starters, I like La La Land. I do. I don't love it. The songs, the music, they're catchy and well-orchestrated. The energy is through the roof. The cast is mostly charismatic. But really liking one of the songs or one of the scenes, however skillfully they're shot, performed, and edited, doesn't always necessarily translate into embracing the entire package. I mean, first you have the elements of fantasy. Emma Stone, who won Best Leading Actress, she plays Mia, an aspiring young playwright and actress from small-town Nevada who lives with three friends in Hollywood. They live in a pretty nice house in a nice part of town with <laughs> palm trees flush against the street, a trellis, and I call... But it's fantasy, right? So we can forgive it. Go ahead and name one film from Hollywood's so-called golden age, especially a musical, that bears any resemblance to any form of reality when it comes to how most people live. And if La La Land is a throwback to that, then, then how can it be faulted for having its head in the clouds? But that's where I also have to do my trademark one-eyebrow raise. If it is whimsical in that sense, if it's paying tribute to the big-budget 20th century Hollywood musical spectacles, which is totally fine if that's the artistic aspiration, 
If they want to have Ryan Gosling sing alone on a pier about the sight of the constellations up in the sky in the city of L.A., walk up to a random couple, help himself to a dance with the woman, and then send her off back into the arms of the man she's actually with, so that they can dance together with big romantic smiles on their faces while Gosling finishes his song, then, hey, go with God. But that makes those dramatic moments that strive to be much more grounded in reality feel a little off-kilter. The film can't seem to decide what it wants its tone to be. It's inconsistent. I just can't help but get the vibe that the film, admirably though, tries to be too many things for too many audience demographics all at once. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's begin at the word go. The movie opens with an establishing shot of a bitch of a rush hour traffic jam on the real life 130 foot high express ramp of the interchange between Interstate 110 and 105 in South Los Angeles. They actually shut down the highway for two full days to film this opening scene. Radios are playing, people are sweltering in the heat in their front seats looking properly pissed, and then a jazzy beat begins to fade in. There's a female voice bop 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 along before launching into the first verse of the song Another Day of Sun. Among other things, she sings about how she comes from a little town west of Santa Fe. She had a love interest back there, they were both 17. He was sweet, it was true, but she knew what she had to do. She had to go to Los Angeles to pursue her lifelong dream to be on the big screen. She opens her front door, steps out into the highway, begins to dance around, and she's joined by another random motorist who wobbles with her about how they don't have a nickel to their names, but they hopped on a bus and here they came. Maybe they were brave, or just insane. They'll have to see. Cause maybe in that sleepy town west of Santa Fe, that old flame will sit down in a movie theater see them on the screen, and think about how he used to know them. So, question. I know it's a musical, and they're singing this verse together, and that it's nothing more than a duet. But I assume that the fact that they're singing the same lyrics together does not necessarily mean that we're supposed to get that this young woman and this young man, that the two of them were both seeing this poor rejected dude at the same time back in that sleepy town west of Santa Fe. Because if they were both seeing him and didn't know about each other, but they're now singing and dancing about him together down the interstate? Talk about an unbelievable coincidence. Small world, huh? Anywho, the song is about chasing after your dreams, and no matter what setback you face, there's always another day of sun for you to keep plowing forward. It's a good song. But there is one point where a third motorist lifts up the door of the back of a cargo truck, and standing in there with their instruments ready to play is a band. And play they do. And to be candid, as soon as this band shows up on screen in the back of this truck, with 40 to 50 motorists gathered around them, clapping along in rhythm, while a few of them take turns having a shot at a close-up of some fancy dance moves, one does have to wonder, what exactly did I put in my bong? I remember using this opening scene in my film class a couple of years ago when we were studying camera angles and shots. I deliberately did not tell the class what the movie was. And once the band showed up, one kid in the class, I'll never forget this, he's looking at the screen, He scrunches up his eyes in suppressed laughter, and he says, What the hell is this? And to be candid, that was exactly the kind of reaction that I was secretly hoping for. This kid just went with it. So all of these commuters, instead of bitching about the gridlock, they whiz past on skateboards, they do somersaults on each other's car roofs, (laughs) they twirl some hula hoops, they climb on top of the concrete barriers, and kids, don't try this at home. The song ends, the musically merry and considerably sweaty motorists get back into their front seats, the title of the film pops up on screen, and you realize that the title La La Land just might have more than one meaning that applies here. And that's when we meet Sebastian, played by Ryan Gosling. He's sitting in his own car with the radio on. He's a musician, jazz to be precise. 
with dreams of his own to someday open up his own jazz nightclub. Inside her own vehicle is Mia, who appears to be talking to somebody on the phone. Back inside his vehicle is Sebastian, honking at Mia to move her ass on down the road, but there's no one on the phone she's talking to. She's actually practicing for an audition she's on her way to. Sebastian passes her with a dirty look, but she flips him off. It is no spoiler to say that Sebastian and Mia eventually formally meet each other. At first, they would both drink the only available water if the other one's on fire, but in true old-school Hollywood style, they soon become romantically involved as each of them gets more and more caught up in each other's dreams and aspirations. They see themselves in each other, so it's the story of how this romance develops over time while they're both reaching out for the rainbow that always seems just a few impossible centimeters away from their hopeful fingertips. John Legend has a supporting role as Keith, an old friend of Sebastian. They were in a jazz band together. And J.K. Simmons appears briefly as the manager of a restaurant where Sebastian has a piano gig. But flag on the play at this point, La La Land is aesthetically a genuinely striking film. It got Oscars for its cinematography and its production design, both well-earned, and there is real chemistry between Stone and Gosling. I would not call either one of them the best professional singers I've ever heard, but they're good, and they're sweet, and they're charming, and they gamely give it their all. I don't think that anyone who generally dislikes musicals would be necessarily won over by this one, but it was a passion project for Damien Chazelle, who became the youngest Best Director winner in Academy Awards history. And where there's passion and vision, that's always a good thing. There's a lot to say about the merits of La La Land, but I'd stop short of calling it a modern-day masterpiece. It debuted in Italy in August of 16 at the Venice Film Festival. It made the festival rounds at, let's see, Telluride, Toronto, Vienna, Key West, Florida, and Mumbai all throughout the fall before finally in December and January opening to the general movie-going public, us plebeians. And now it's time for the behind-the-scenes fun facts, so proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including potential plot spoilers and possibly the endings, are going to come fast and furious. So spoiler alert. Now. Let's say we look at Moonlight first. Number 5. The co-writer and director, Barry Jenkins, has gone on record as explaining his reasons why there are only two Caucasian people who can be seen anywhere in the film, and that's in the distance, in the scene that takes place at the rehab center. Jenkins said that as someone who grew up in the Liberty City neighborhood near Miami, Florida, he never met a white person until he was in college. He wanted the surroundings of this fictional character to, to represent that reality. The two in the rehab center in the background were there, he said, because, quote, everybody struggles, end quote, and he wanted them to represent just that. Number four. For much of the cast, Moonlight was their first professional acting gig, but one name you may recognize appears not in the cast, but in the credits as an executive producer, Brad Pitt. Number three. The film took a total of 25 days to shoot, and the three actors who play the lead character at different stages of his life, they apparently never met. They never watched each other's performances. They never saw each other on film before shooting their own scenes. Number two. Mahershala Ali won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Moonlight. He was also nominated for the Screen Actors Guild Award, the Golden Globe, and the BAFTA, which is the British equivalent of the Academy Award. But he chose not to attend the BAFTA ceremony that year, even though he was one of the nominees. His wife at the time was expecting their first child. He was concerned that if he left the U.S. to go to England to go to the awards show, that he might not be allowed to re-enter the U.S. 
under former U.S. President Trump's recent travel ban against Muslims. He may not have won the BAFTA anyway, but he became a happy father. And number one. All the scenes were shot at real locations in and around Miami. Specifically, the Liberty City neighborhood is where much of the filming took place, including the area around a housing project called Liberty Square. Now, I mentioned that director Barry Jenkins grew up in that neighborhood, but another thing is that at the time of the filming, he still had relatives living there, which made the whole experience all the more real for him, all the more personal. And as far as La La Land goes, let's see what fun facts will make you kick up your heels on the rooftop of your car next time you're stuck in gridlock on a hot, humid afternoon. Number five. Ryan Gosling has been married to Eva Mendez since 2011. Now, she is not in La La Land, but she inadvertently contributed to the script. As a joke, she evidently said to him at one point, L.A. worships everything and values nothing. Gosling saw the truth in what she intended to be a joke. He brought it to the attention of the powers that be, and voila, into the script and into the film went her words. Number four. After Sebastian gets fired from his piano gig at Bill's restaurant, Mia runs into him at a pool party where he's performing with a band. She offers him the idea of playing the song I Ran by A Flock of Seagulls. The singer in this pool party band is musician D.A. Wallach, who's personal friends with the director, Damien Chazelle. The two of them in real life were in a band together in college. Number three. According to a November 15, 2016 issue of Vanity Fair, the scene where Mia's auditioning for a role, only to have one of the casting directors accept a phone call in the middle of it, that was taken from a real-life experience of Ryan Gosling. He was auditioning. This was years before La La Land, but he says that he got so caught up in the emotional moment in the script he was using, he was so immersed in the character that he managed to cry. But the tears fell on deaf ears because the casting director took a phone call in the middle of his ocular waterworks. Number two. This was the third film that Gosling and Stone did together. Their second film together was in 2013 in the crime drama Gangsta Squad. But they first played off each other in the 2011 romantic comedy Crazy Stupid Love, where they played love interests who reenact the lift scene from Dirty Dancing. Emma Stone was apparently so terrified to do the lift that they ended up using a stunt double. And number one. To get inspiration, Damien Chazelle, Ryan Gosling, and Emma Stone visited the widow of Gene Kelly. For non-musical fans, Gene Kelly is the star of 1951's Best Picture winner in American in Paris, not to mention the iconic Singing in the Rain. So the three of them were able to take a look at Gene Kelly's script of Singing in the Rain it still had all of his notes and annotations all over it. That must have been pretty fucking cool. But not so fucking cool was the moment during the visit when they accidentally let her dog outside. The dog ran off. Chazelle and Gosling ran through traffic to get it back. Don't worry, the pooch was fine in the end, but can you imagine if it wasn't? I mean, Gangsta Squad kills Singing in the Rain's dog. I mean, <coughs> but with dogs safe and movie stars' reputations intact, as promised, here is a fun fact for each of the other Best Picture nominees of 2016. Arrival. When casting was underway for Arrival, Amy Adams was Denis Villeneuve's first choice for the role of Louise. She reportedly accepted the role within 24 hours of receiving the script. Criminally, and I do mean criminally, she was not shortlisted on the Best Actress nominee list that year. 
for Hacksaw Ridge. The battlefield was shot on a farm in Australia. During the shoot, there were two smoke trucks that would circle the area to obscure anything that might have ruined the shot. For hidden figures. In the Mercury Mission Control set, a lot of the control console props were originally made for the Mission Control Room in 1995's Apollo 13. The props were then modified and used in the Hunger Games Mockingjay 1 and 2. For Hell or High Water. Dale Dickey and Kevin Rankin, who have no scenes together, both also appear in the series Breaking Bad, where they have no scenes together. Both Hell or High Water and Breaking Bad were filmed in New Mexico. For Manchester by the Sea. Matt Damon was originally going to direct, but Kenneth Lonergan stepped in when Damon withdrew due to scheduling conflicts. The plan then was for Damon to stay on as producer and lead actor. And at one point, John Krasinski, he of A Quiet Place 1 and 2 and the comedy series The Office, he was going to be in the cast. For Fences, this is a film based on a 1980s Broadway play by August Wilson. James Earl Jones, Darth Vader, Mufasa, this is CNN. He originated the role on stage and won the Tony for it. Denzel Washington and Viola Davis, they both starred in a Broadway revival in 2010. They both got Tonys, and they both came back on for the film version. Last but certainly not least, Lion. Academy Award nominee Dev Patel prepared for the demanding role of Saru Brierly by visiting the orphanage where he stayed in India, traveling on the very train to Calcutta that the real Saru accidentally rode on three decades earlier, and wrote down all his observations and his reflections in a diary. Personal opinion only here, but this lineup of nine Best Picture nominees is one of the strongest in the new millennium. If there are any titles in this bunch that you have not seen, for the love of all creatures big and small, get on it and tell me what you think, please. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous, and this time it's all what you can see for yourself on YouTube. This is a hearty helping of outrageous with a heaping side portion of what the f***. Okay, most movie fans know about the biggest case of the yikes in recent Oscar history, the best picture mix-up. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway got their most widespread publicity in decades thanks to this one. Back in 1967, the two of them had starred together in Bonnie and Clyde, and they reunited now at the Oscar ceremony to co-present best picture. Beatty opened the envelope, emitted a nervous chuckle, looked confused, and Dunaway looked at him like, what the hell are you doing? She chuckled herself and said to him under her breath, you're impossible. Smiling nervously, he handed her the envelope. She took it and leans into the mic to throw the prize at La La Land. You hear screams of excitement and joy and cast and crew stand up, they all hug each other, and wouldn't you know it, they get a friggin' standing ovation. Everybody took to the stage. And as the first producer to speak is happily thanking everybody, from everyone connected to the film, to his wife, to his parakeet, the camera pans from left to right to show everyone standing behind looking mighty pleased. Emma Stone is even seen wiping away tears. But at the 1 minute 50 second point on the YouTube clip, the first producer finishes his speech and steps aside. Producer number two takes the mic, which leaves number one and number three on either side of him. They suddenly look off to the side and then quickly back at each other. I mean, this choreography is as good as anything in the film. Then some backstage dude is wearing a headset, weaseling his way in and out of the group like a grasshopper. Headset has got the best picture envelope in his hand. Little by little, more of the cast and crew are catching on to what just happened. 
And then Beatty waves his hand to push someone to the side as he makes his way over to look at the envelope. Producer number three knows at this point that something wicked this way comes. Number three is speaking. He turns, looks behind him, turns back to the mic with a self-conscious smile and says, We lost, by the way. Beatty is standing behind him holding the right envelope. Number one reclaims the mic and says, This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Headset grabs the envelope angrily from Beatty, but number one snatches the envelope from Headset like a goddamn champion and holds it up for the camera as proof that Moonlight is destined to have another day of sun. It's another day of sun. So let's swivel towards the final segment of the show, the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. And each and every listener is always invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names, in case that makes anybody feel uncomfortable. That's why I always do first name and last initial only. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out in the next episode, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. In the last episode, we looked at the year 2011 and the films The Artist and Hugo, both of which took home some of those little golden guys with there being no mix-up. Viola Davis was up for leading that year for The Help, and the question was, what 2016 film directed by Denzel Washington got Viola Davis her Oscar win for Best Supporting Actress? And if you've been listening to this episode all along, then you know the answer. Fences. And a big huzzah to return winner Mary C., Mary, many thanks for continuing to listen, continuing to play along. I always appreciate the interaction. So, if you're a first-time listener, or if you've listened before but never took part in the trivia segment, carpe diem, why not? It's fun, and I'm always happy to plug anything that other people create. Music, a podcast, a book, you name it. And it does not matter when you answer any trivia question from any episode. Retroactive shoutouts and memes all around no matter how much time has passed between any episode's production date and when you listen. And to keep your mental movie motors running, here is this week's trivia question. J.K. Simmons, currently nominated for Best Supporting Actor for playing William Frawley, the guy who was Fred Mertz in I Love Lucy, in the Amazon film Being the Ricardos, he appears in a small role in La La Land as Sebastian's restaurant manager. But he also won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar in early 2015, for what 2014 film also directed by Damien Chazelle? I'll give you a hint. The film's got a lot of rhythm, but Simmons plays a pain in the neck. See what I did there? Ooh, savage. Name this 2014 film. Send your answers over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions, or if you have any thoughts, comments of your own that you want to share on Moonlight, La La Land, anything about any of the 2016 nominees about Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, host Jimmy Kimmel, the Oscars show itself, just simply hit me up in my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. As for what's coming up next time, with the Academy Awards airing live next weekend, Sunday night, March 27th, we're closing the curtain on these looks back and instead having a rundown of this year's nominees. So bone up on those contenders and tune in. And that brings episode 45 to a close. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And please do not hesitate to rate or review this podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, 
whatever platform you're using. It's always a motivator to keep this humble little podcast going. And any and all honest feedback and suggestions, they're always welcome. It's only going to help. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, you keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of a virtual choir and orchestra, honoring the temporary and former Best Picture champ, La La Land. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.